Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Then Yoda slowly blinked his large eyes at Atticus Finch. Strong the force is in you, my friend, but a lesson you must learn. A person you understand never until things from his point of view you consider. Atticus nodded. I will teach that to my children, although possibly with the words in a slightly different order. Kion. Yoda blinked gravely. Name you must the girl Scout. Actually, said Atticus, neither one of my kids is a Girl Scout. Wrong did that come out, said Yoda. Kion, what are you doing? I know what you're about to say, Greg, that I have no right to tamper with an indelible fiction character like Atticus Finch, but that is so top-down, it's so paternalistic, it's so rigid. These characters exist for us to make new kinds of meaning, and as an artist, I... That's not what I was going to say. It's not? I was just going to ask if you think it's clear enough that, in your version, Atticus is black. Hmm. All right, how about this? You know what, said Yoda? Remind me, you do, of a cross between Mace Windu and Lando Calrissian. So he's like a Lando Windu. Totally. Eh, That nails it down for me. That frees me up to polish the section where R2-D2 is the first robot to attend the Alabama public schools. Today on the show, tomorrow's publication of books by Harper Lee and Ta-Nehisi Coates. Also, Ted Cruz's battle with the New York Times. And now, the nation's foremost Boo Radley reenactor, Colin McEnroe. That indeed would be me. So, a little bit later on in the show, we are going to talk to Dylan Byers from Politico about a battle between Ted Cruz and the New York Times. A battle which, by the way, only Ted Cruz can win at this point. Uh, And then, uh, towards the end of the show, a regular contributor, Julia Pastel, will join me. She is also the co-host of a book podcast called Literary Disco. We'll be talking about the publication on Tuesday of Harper Lee's new old novel, the novel she wrote before she wrote uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, That publication on Tuesday is being sort of treated as, at least by the book-selling industry, as some kind of mega merchandising event. They're going to, for example, Barnes & Noble outlets are going to open two hours early. People are going to show up. They're going to get there. Uh, reserve copies. They're going to wait in line dressed as Boo Radley. I'm not sure that's going to really happen. But anyway, um, all of that uh, is ahead of us. But we do want to begin with the other publishing event of Tuesday. And I don't know whether Random House sort of figured out (laughs) what a good pairing this was going to be, because I I don't know whether they even quite understood what kind of book the new Harper Lee book was going to be. But Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, which is going to be published later this year, was moved up for publication to Tuesday. Uh, It is also, in its own way, a long-awaited book. Uh, it has been praised by a lot of different people. Uh, the only blurb he wanted was from Toni Morrison. Uh, so it was sub- he didn't know Toni Morrison. Uh, neither did his editor. They submitted it. Uh, she did nothing less than say that his voice fills the void left by the death of James Baldwin. Uh, and the New-, New Yorker's David Remnick called the book uh, extraordinary. A.O. Scott of the New York Times went further calling it essential, like water or air. Uh, it's gotten getting that kind. Of course, everything that Ta-Nehisi Coates kind of does uh, gets, uh, I think, kind of turns to gold these days. I mean, the stuff that he writes, 
seems to uh, just rise above everything else. So joining us right now is Gene Seymour, freelance culture critic, uh, occasional contributor to CNN.com, book forum in the nation. He's actually doing an essay on the Coates book for a forthcoming book forum issue. Uh, he's joining us from the studios at WHYY in Philadelphia. Interestingly, Ta-Nehisi Coates was just on the Terry Gross uh, Fresh Air broadcast uh, right before this one, which originates also from WHYY. Um, Gene Seymour, welcome back to our show. Great to be back, Colin. So do you know uh, yet, I don't know whether you've written your essay or, or you're writing your essay, do you know what tack you're going to take? What interests you most about this book? Um, I'm I'm literally today just starting to sort of put something together. Um, and, you know, you know how the process goes. When you're trying to write something, you sort of grab at whatever's swirling around you. But um, my my initial reactions, and I, and, I, and I finished reading the book last Thursday, um, and it coincided, finishing the book coincided, I was watching CNN, and there was a bumper for the Don Lemon News Hour, whatever it's called, talking about the uh, takedown of the Confederate flag in Charleston. And the question um, asked by the headline was, can we move beyond race now? And I came this close to throwing the <laughs> book, the table, and everything else at the screen because... Uh, how how totally um, credulous and and foolish that sentiment is. I mean, this book made it clear. You come to the end of this book knowing that nothing's over yet. Nothing has been over for some time. And the very fact that this book is being measured in the shadow of James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, and which in turn was measured against the shadow of W.E.B. Du Bois's book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, which came out a hundred and Ten years ago or so, uh, means that uh, what, what we've been talking about whenever we talk about race somehow manages to get reconfigured in the same pattern with different details. So um, it was just it was an interesting conversation. I think what what that made me believe that that more than anything, uh, this book speaks to its moment, the way that Baldwin's did, the way that. Uh, Du Bois's did, uh, on, and, and, and the place in which uh, relations between the races had had come to at the at the respective points they wrote their book, uh, and I think uh, you know it has s- the great merits of of Coates's book um, are are very much tied to the moment and the way people are paying attention to what's been going on. It was pushed up, obviously. Uh, because of events in South Carolina and all the events that preceded it, the varied and myriad uh, incidents involving uh, police and uh, and African Americans, and uh, I think that uh, it's going to gain a certain amount of currency um, for it emotionally and otherwise. You know, I, I'm also wondering who you think is the is the more salient audience for this book. I mean, in some ways, this because the book is framed as a letter to his son. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, it could be argued that he's seeing things that African-American people know better than white people right. know. So I'm wondering whether you think that this is a book that he really hopes that white people are going to read uh, or whether he thinks this is more of a guide to African-American people how, to, about how to explain really fundamental things to the rest of the world. I think it's both to a certain extent um i think it's 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 less it's less so a message directly at white people the way say the fire next time was aimed directly remember that came out in 1963 
at the very flashpoint of of the nonviolent movement and and all the convergence convergences of events, violent and otherwise, that were taking place that year. And so that's where the urgency came in. And and Baldwin's book basically, you know, brought people up to the moment where we are now. That on the one hand, you had this this very you know you had, you had protesters in the South carrying on this movement and trying to make change. On the other end, you had the Nation of Islam. You had Malcolm X sort of speaking this kind of apocalyptic message about race relations that needed to be heard and heeded. Uh, and so Baldwin, I think, was speaking to that moment in his own letter to his nephew. That was one of the essays in that book. And I think that that's, it's no accident that Coates has taken this particular uh, tack. And, uh, and uh, the book does have quite a few elements of his own autobiography. Again, it is a letter to his 15-year-old son. He talks about being raised in Baltimore. Some of you who have read his previous work know his story. He was raised by a black nationalist father who was very strict and disciplinarian. Um, He went to Howard University, where some of the certainties he had grown up with had been, were were challenged, and he became a more rounded uh, intellectual figure because of what he had learned. But then he talks about some of the other things, the the, 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 the kind of um, haphazard uh, indignities and injustices that have happened to him and also to his friends. Um, a considerable part of his book is, is, is devoted to the death of somebody he knew at Howard University, and he died at the hands of the, uh, of the uh, Prince Ge- uh, police in Prince George's County uh, near Washington, D.C., which is a predominantly black suburb. Um, which is kind of an unpleasant truth he brings out about this, that it isn't always white-black, but it's simply black people against power or whatever's perceived as power. He, Although this young, that, resh- young, that young man had been mistakenly identified, right, as a criminal suspect. Yes, that's right. Had that's been tailed by, I think, undercover uh, police. That's right, uh, that's right. And then died that's right. at their hands. That's right, that's right. And, and, and bringing all these elements into it, he's trying to also bring in the fact that, yes, it's still, it's still the same but there are all these other factors that, that enter into it, of, of class, which is something that Baldwin's book didn't really get into as much, um, the kind of class contradictions, the kinds of expectations that people have, um, the fact that the, certain, that the things that are said to you in anger in public venues have a resonance or a tripwire effect that a white person wouldn't have. He, he mentioned several incidents like this. And... Uh, and it winds up, I think, and this is this is key here. It, it winds up, you know, Baldwin's book ended with a kind of exhortation to change, with the expectation that if people listened to this exhortation, things would change. Well, I think Coates's conclusion isn't quite as optimistic, or as or, I, I think. I think the way I'm not sure I'd call it pessimistic either. I think it's more resigned to the well, fact that this struggle continues, and yeah. One way that that's been interpreted is that, although this doesn't really uh, help in terms of any kind of Baldwin-Coates dichotomy, but um, one way that that's been interpreted is that 
that so much of the language of the civil rights movement, uh, of um, of the movement for change uh, in, in America vis-a-vis black America has has come within the context of the Christian churches. Um, obviously, right. it's, it's leading spokesman is the Reverend Martin Luther King, but even beyond that, even the incredible moment we saw a few weeks ago with President Obama singing Amazing That's Grace. Right. Um, and, and that Coates just isn't that guy, right? That he's, no. he is, he's an atheist, no. he was not brought up in any kind of religion whatsoever, and and, and no. you almost get the feeling that's one of the differences, right? He doesn't really yeah. have a place to hang the message of hope. No, no, he doesn't. Um, except in, if if there is any hope to be derived, it's it's in the very intellectual rigor he brings to some very emotional topics. Um, I think that that's the kind of thing that a, that a, that a sensitive, open reader. Um, I'm thinking of a white reader, but obviously I'm also thinking of African-American readers, can get from reading this book, um, which, I, which, by the way, uh, you were going to mention this, I'm sure, but um, his, his, uh, his previous breakthrough was, came last year with the publication of an, of an extensive Atlantic Monthly article making the case for reparations, um, a controversial, provocative, but <laughs> scarily persuasive article about, mm-hmm. about the injustices, you know, with and using the example of Chicago real estate redlining and things like that as examples. This book is kind of an emotional underpinning, for uh, an emotional uh, hypertext for that very clear-eyed uh, investigative report. He gives you the emotional feeling. Um, there's one key line that he uses. Um, there, there are many, many stretches of beautiful writing, but there's one key line he says to his, to his son at some point, which just stops you, no matter who you are. He says, the entire narrative of this country argues against the truth of who you are, which, um, which, is, which, is, which I think speaks volumes about just the way every person of color has felt at one point or another, regardless of ideology, class, or religious persuasion, um, at some point, that, that everything that's been built up, everything that gets asserted somehow leaves or excludes the reality of who they are as individuals, never mind who they are collectively, because we all know that collective judgments have have lapses, you know, in terms of taking into account just who people are. And I think that that sentence, to me, kind of crystallized, you know, just what this book is about and what he is telling his son and all the information that he puts in there to buttress that information. It's in the language, you said uh, it's an emotional underpinning to the sort of policy-oriented and intellectual argument of the reparations article. It's to, it's also very visceral. I mean, really, really visceral. Visceral at the level of viscera, of the body. He talks a lot about the body. We're going to just yes. play, we'll play a little clip of Coates reading from his own book. I don't know if I said it. The book is called Between, uh, Between the World and Me. This That's is him. Right. He's reading this book on NPR's Morning Edition uh, last week. Here's a little passage. Now at night, I held you in a great fear wide as all our American generations took me. Now I personally understood my father and the old mantra, either I can beat him or the police. I understood it all, the cable wires, the extension cords, the ritual switch. Black people love their children with a kind of obsession. You are all we have, and you come to us endangered. I think we would like to kill you ourselves before seeing you killed in the streets that America made. That is a philosophy of the disembodied, of a people who control nothing, who can protect nothing, 
who are made to fear not just the criminals among them, but the police who lord over them with all the moral authority of a protection racket. So that's Ta-Nehisi Coates reading. And, and Gene Seymour, he just comes back to this idea of the body over and over again. Yep. He writes to Samora, you must yes. always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And he makes this argument that, in fact, there's just this violence that, that runs through life under those circumstances, that his father is more violent towards him than mm-hmm. a white father would have to be, that his, he has to learn to live in a neighborhood where, where violence is around him all the time, not just from the police, but from his peers, from his colleagues. But, you know, to me, and I'm wondering what you think about this, that, you know, one of the things that ta Coates has kind of been over the last few years is kind of an alternative voice to President Obama at times. And they get on each other's nerves, too. They've had kind of little yeah. run-ins. And, and you know, yeah. that whole line about the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, to me, that's sort of him saying, you know what, I want to write something a lot more direct than the mm-hmm. stuff that the president says. I want to mm-hmm. talk at a visceral level of what it's like to be black because I just feel like he doesn't do that. I don't know. Do you think some of this is kind of directed at the way that President Obama, when he's not being incredible the way he was at, at, when he sang Amazing Grace, the way that President Obama kind of, you know, he's unsatisfactory to a Ta-Nehisi Coates? Yeah, I don't, I don't see it as conflict so much, Colin, as, as one doing, each man is doing his job. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's carrying out his, his function in in whatever this is the social dynamic is it's it's the president's function to be the president to be the president of all people and to persuade and negotiate and and, and navigate his way through political thickets people like Tanahesi Coates are there to feed the 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 matter to feed the matter some of some of the some of the raw matter of what needs to be negotiated what needs to be added to the negotiations I think is what people like Tana Hesse Coates is and I I just want to bring up you, you, when you when when you, when you were playing that passage it reminded me the title of this book between the between the world and me comes from a poem by Richard Wright and Wright's language Wright's own language which was unlike Baldwin's very direct and blunt and edgy and and violent um uh, i think is more um has more has more connections with the the style of this book than baldwin's in my opinion I, i'm not i'm not trying to pay, place any it's it's all there it's all it all gets filtered in somehow there's even some tony morrison in there but it all gets filtered in somehow but i think that 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 richard wright's voice is every bit as um prominent in, in the making of this of this book particularly uh, as as any of the any of the other progenitors um, people like Baldwin and Ellison and the rest I, I thought one of the other remarkable observations he makes in this book and I've just never thought about it this way he actually talks for a moment he talks so much about violence in the book and about about uh, the assault on the body. But he also he has this incredible passage where he says, it struck me that perhaps the defining feature of being drafted into the black race was that inescapable robbery of time because the moments we spend readying the mask or readying ourselves to accept half as much could not be recovered. The robbery of time is not measured in lifespans, but in the moments we lose. It is the last bottle of wine that you have just uncorked, but do not have time to drink. It is the second kiss that you do not have time to share before she walks out of your life. It is the raft of second chances for them and 23-hour days for us. Boy, I hadn't really thought about that robbery of time. There's like the extra time well, it takes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you've just given, I think, that, that passage gives you an idea of, of 
you, you talked about the the audience for this book earlier. Who's this meant for? When I read those when I read those lines, I I go, yeah, that that strikes a chord with me. I mean, I. I have felt that way. I, I, I have felt, uh, you know, that, that, you know, what's wrong with me? And how come nobody else notices that I'm walking through this a kind of hostile world and I'm being me and yet somehow I'm not being me? It, it gets back to Ellison's whole, you know, uh, motif of the invisible man. You see everything but me. And every one of these books, whenever they're submitted, is a, is a brief for acknowledging the personality of of each individual of each individual African American, you know, we are not a mass, we are not a concept, and it gets. I mean, you and I agree uh, agree that race, the concept of race, is is basically a silly, stupid concept, an abstract, an abstraction. But the only thing that's stupider about it is ignoring its its significance, you know, deserved or not, in most of the transactions we make in American life. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. And I think that that for you had that kind of that th- those lines had that kind of impact on you. For me, they confirm they confirm something in me that I didn't or couldn't quite articulate until someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is younger than I am, who has had different experiences than I have, nonetheless feels as acutely as I have. Yeah, it, so it's, I think that's a value for a black audience, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I had had this conversation uh, about a month or no, I guess a couple of weeks ago uh, when this whole question of Calhoun College at Yale University came up. And I, I got in touch with my roommate of three years of Yale who is African-American. And, and I said, I said, you know, I just I, I went through four years of Yale with you, three years living with you. I don't remember this. Is this something people talked about? And he said, you know. And we're both left-handed. He said, being black is a little bit like being left-handed. You know, if you're left-handed, you really notice things. <laughs> and, but if yeah. you're not, you know. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I thought that was yeah. a great metaphor. Obviously, there's so much, so much more that's pernicious and disturbing and violent and visceral in all the yeah. ways that Coates writes about that, that yeah. is not true about being left-handed. But it's a, it's a great way to look at it. And, and yeah, I feel like, on, you know, back to President Obama, I thought he really— one of his most Coatesian moments was when he was running in 2008, and there were people asking if he was black enough. Remember that? Yep. And, and he said, yep. at one point he said, I, when I'm trying to hail a cab in New York, it turns out I'm pretty black. Um, yep. That's the way I felt, too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that, 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 that's how dumb these discussions get. I, I did a piece for CNN.com about not, not being black enough or not being considered black enough and all the things I went through uh, on that score from – from from both white and black people over 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 my entire life and and this kind of you know uh, you know the, the way one speaks the way one conducts themselves whether you listen to the beatles or not i mean these are the kind of silly you know things that come up and that 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 measure this ridiculous thing of authenticity which i'm a concept that i'm less and less patient with and I think what comes through in this particular – I think what may distinguish this book from its predecessors is the fact that he is finding a higher, truer authenticity by taking all the different experiences he's had, the, the way that he sees the, the criminal element in his, Brooklyn, in his Baltimore neighborhood as being you – know, as, as acting out of fear, you know, as, as, being, as being afraid that, that these aggress- – that these, this aggression – this criminal activity comes from the same sense of fear that he, Ta-Nehisi Coates, feels. 
that's that's a perspective that 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 truly truly is authentic in in the ways that all the other silly things of being black or not being black enough are not so i think in identifying those things he manages to at least begin the process of transcending some of the some of the baggage we've been carrying from you know from from the last time we talked about this in public you know or the last the last books that were published you know we're talking to Gene. So, we're talking to Gene Seymour uh, right now. And he's a freelance culture critic, writer, and occasional contributor to CNN.com, Book Forum, and The Nation. Uh, we hope to have him on again later this week if it all works out. But uh, we're talking about the book the, um, "Between the World and Me" by Tana Hasi Coates. You know, we're sort of running out of time here, but but you and you kind of answered the question that I wanted to uh, ask you, which was, you know, is is this going to be different somehow? It's being set up that way. I mean, certainly a lot of pressure is being put on this book. I mean, the kind of mm-hmm. anointing that has gone on, not only from mm-hmm. Toni Morrison, but from various white critics and establishment figures. I, and is it, I mean, does it feel like that? Does it feel like that it really is a kind of watershed book, that it really might explain things that haven't been explained properly before? As I say, it's it's a book for and of its moment. And and when you when you write something and when you publish something that's of its moment, the question is how long does that moment last? In some cases it depends on whether things move along progressively or or move ahead as they should or whether, you know, some of the things that he that he talks about and I'm not saying the book is 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 flawless. There are parts of the book that I think it, things kind of get tend to get away from him as he's trying to make his points. But I think it, it all depends really on how long and how much people are engaged in the things that have happened leading up to the publication of this book. I think that's what's going to be the key here and how much that carries into the next few months, the next year, the election year, whether whether we're still talking about these things or trying to do something about them. That, I think, will be the measurement of whether this book lasts or not. All right, Gene Seymour, thanks so much for joining us for this. We're going to come back and have a conversation about a different book, a very different book by Ted Cruz. A bottle of justice. We are back, uh, and uh, it's Monday, and we're doing the scramble. But we're doing kind of a special publishing-oriented scramble, uh, talking about three different books that are arriving on the scene. Uh, they do different things. Uh, the, the, the ones that kind of bookend this conversation uh, have more in common than the book we're going to talk about right now, and that is the new book uh, of uh, by Ted Cruz. It's called A Time for Truth. Ted Cruz has gotten into a battle with the New York Times, a battle which is very gratifying and useful to Ted Cruz, maybe not so much for the New York Times, about whether or not this book um, re- belongs on the bestseller list. Joining us right now is Dylan Byers, media reporter at Politico, maybe the guy who broke this story, um, certainly the first guy I saw writing about this story. Story, uh, Dylan Byers. How did this battle get joined? How did Ted Cruz decide that he had some kind of argument to make with the New York Times about whether he should be on the bestseller list? Sure. Well, if you're uh, the author of a potentially best-selling book or the publisher of that book, you are looking at your own sort of internal numbers provided by Nielsen BookScan, and those numbers are telling you that sales are are going gangbusters. Um, in the case of Ted Cruz's book. You've got more than 11,000 books sold in the first week. Uh, by any measure, you'd think that would put you very high up on the New York Times bestsellers list, which is an important place to be. It's one of the most influential 
uh, list of best-selling books in the country. So when the New York Times sends over its advance of the bestsellers list to Harper Harper Collins, and Harper Collins sees that the book is not on the list, they inquire about it, and and what they got back, which is what we uh, the Times has now stated publicly, is that the book does not meet its criteria. Uh, for inclusion, and that's specifically because it was driven by bulk sales, meaning that the implication there is that the cruise campaign or someone affiliated with the cruise campaign tried to jack up sales by buying these books in bulk. But of course, HarperCollins and now Amazon, the, the biggest internet retailer in the country, say they have no evidence of any bulk purchases taking place. So would it be fair to say that we're kind of at a point, and we're talking to Dylan Byers from Politico, um, that we're kind of at a point where a battle has been joined which only Ted Cruz can win, uh, that that he is, first of all, obviously in the thick of a Republican primary where the best thing you can be is at swords points with the New York Times. Um, so, I mean, he sort of wins either way, right? I mean, if he doesn't yeah. get on the bestseller list, fine. Yeah, I mean, one could— you could make the argument, uh, and I think it'd be the right one, that, that Ted Cruz won as soon as this battle began. I mean, the only way that Ted Cruz really loses this battle is if Amazon and HarperCollins aren't standing by him, uh, if it turns out that there is evidence that his campaign made bulk purchases. That sends a signal, I think, to any thinking person that, that the campaign is not on the up and up and that it's lying and that it's trying to manipulate the candidate's popularity. Uh, uh, Etc. But but insofar as we're just arguing over different methodologies of how you measure book sales, uh, yeah, absolutely. Conservatives have rallied around Ted Cruz yet again. Uh, there is no one that they love to beat up on more than the New York Times. And when they see the New York Times beating up on a conservative candidate, they rally behind behind that candidate. You know, um, one of the things that I wanted to find out right away, uh, I think right now the New York Times has a very excellent and interesting public editor named Margaret Sullivan, uh, who uh, who doesn't seem to be afraid to rattle the cages around her own building if she has to. And I guess she'd been away for a few days. She came back and found this as one of the uh, this tempest that was brewing in her teapot. Um, and, you know, she published this um, response that, I, you know, you've also obtained as well, I think, from uh, I think her name is Ellen Murphy, a spokesperson for The New York Times. Uh, and, and near the end of this response, Murphy says, we aren't going to discuss the details of how we do our analysis, since the whole point is to try to minimize the possibility that people can manipulate the numbers. You know, Dylan, I found this kind of troubling. You know, I mean, I I. I as a public radio host, I should be siding with the New York Times against Ted Cruz. But there's something sure. I, I just feel as though, first of all, the New York Times, they they say that they're going to be transparent. I mean, post Jason Blair, Bill Keller made all these pronouncements about we're not going to rely on anonymous horses, sources as much and all this kind of stuff. But every time you ask them for something and here they've effectively, as you say, accused Ted Cruz of trying to manipulate his bestseller ratings. And then they're going to refuse to also explain how they arrive at their conclusions. To me, I, I found that kind of distasteful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I think the Times would like to be, I think, you know, the New York Times, like the Obama administration before Obama became president, would like to be the sort of model of, of transparency. And, and I think that its commitment to that is, is ultimately uh, an admirable one. Uh, but, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't see how this, I, I don't see how you make the situation any worse if you just come forward and say, look, this is how we uh, measure best-selling 
books, right? I mean, I think I think if it's an honest assessment of, of, of sales and a true reflection of reader interest in, in whatever books are out that week, I don't really think there's any way to game that. And I don't think that by just coming clean on what your sort of methodology is, uh, uh, that you would somehow screw up that process or, or tempt more people toward foul play. Dylan Byers, at some point, if this controversy continues to rage on, uh, you may have to read uh, A Time for Truth. Or have you read it already? Have you read the Oh, no, I, I absolutely have not read it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, the truth is I'm just far too busy trying to keep track of, the, of these warring statements between these various factions in order to actually read the book. You know, what I think is interesting, though, on that point is uh, uh, it's interesting to think of book sales as a measure of interest in presidential candidates, right? I mean, uh, if, if we were going solely on, on, on book sales, you would have some of these candidates like uh, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Bernie Sanders, ginning up a lot more support than, say, you would among like some of the more uh, uh, mainstream candidates that we see, certainly on the right, in Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. I mean, Cruz's book far outpaced Marco Rubio's book, which has been out for six for six months. But whether or not that translates to votes is obviously a different story. Well, I think it's kind of a roulette wheel, too. I mean, obviously, Audacity of Hope um, uh, was, uh, I think, uh, a great articulation point for President Obama. It can be a way to win, but, you know, for Hillary Clinton, the book that she put out last year, I mean, people hated it. Uh, people who would be part of her uh, kind of intellectual base <laughs> rejected it and said it was a horrible, you know, collection of, of pablum. Um, and, and yeah, it seems as like this stuff gets fought out at almost at a comic level. We're, there are even arguments going on. PolitiFact, as you no doubt know, fact-checked Donald Trump's usual slurry, blurry, half-mumbled, semi-retracted statement that his book, The Art right. of the Deal, in 1987, was the best-selling business book of all time. Right. Well, you know, I, I, what's, uh, the, these books that candidates write are almost necessarily boring and bad <laughs> books unless you've got nothing to lose, unless you can just rail against Something, unless you can, you know, in the case of Ted Cruz, you can rail against uh, big government and the media, uh, or in the case of Bernie Sanders, you can you can rail against Republicans. But the the candidates who are actually running very serious campaigns, who actually have a chance of winning this thing, uh, they almost by necessity need to write just terribly tedious books uh, <laughs> in order to not stir the pot. And in fact, the, the exception to that rule, of course, is is President Obama's first book, which, you know, I think was written a long time before he, oh, yeah. he really knew he was going to be running for president in 2008. But it was a great, uh, um, it, it was sort of a strategic move before he even knew he needed a strategy because it took, right, a, whole, exactly. took a whole bunch of things right off the table. Dylan Byers, so great to talk to you. Really enjoy your uh, reporting. Uh, Dylan Byers, media reporter for Politico. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with our final publishing story. That is the Harper Lee story.
All right, we're back. Kion um, Wolf uh, had to uh, go home early today, and as a result, Lydia Brown has been on the board. I've been hurling abuse at her, attempting to make her burst into tears. It has not worked so far. She's doing a great job. Tucker Rives also produced this show with help from Kion. Katie Tularski is our executive producer. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR. Colin, our interns today are Anna Geismar uh, and Hallie St. Germain, Allison Ehrenreich. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gregory Peck. For everything you missed today, including the videos of the Faith Middleton show staff making recipes from the New York Times bestselling Mike Huckabee cookbook. Visit our website, WNPR.org. Tomorrow, the colorful and necessarily tragic story of Stalin's daughter. You think your parents are embarrassing. Now uh, we're going back to the show. I have to get one more piece of publishing news in. Uh, Bloom County, the Brooke Brathard comic strip. You have to be a certain age to be excited about this because it's been away for 25 years. But anyway, it's a great comic strip. It's coming back. That was just announced. Joining us now is Julia Pastel. She's done everything there is to do in Hartford, including produce this show, uh, and has also recently written a wonderful uh, piece about why she lives in Hartford uh, for the uh, Hartford Current. Uh, but I think most saliently, she's one of the hosts of the podcast Literary Disco. She's here today to talk Talk to us about the new Harper Lee novel or the new old prequel written before To Kill a Mockingbird. Prequel, sequel. Whatever, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah, it's a prequel and a sequel. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so you're here to talk about this. First of all, you're very passionate about books, but beyond that, you're very passionate passionate about Harper Lee specifically and To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic. And this whole situation is, I mean, it's the equivalent of like your grandfather's on his deathbed and you like find Nazi memorabilia in his attic. I mean, this is what's happening with this book is Harper Lee has, uh, you know, agreed under some things, suspicious circumstances to have this book published. And it turns out Atticus Finch, one of the most beloved, if not the most beloved character in American literature, has turned out to be a giant racist. All well, along. Just for the record, my father fought with, my grandfather fought with uh, Rommel in North Africa. He was not aware <laughs> of it. Uh, so we say Nazi memorabilia. But anyway, so, um, well, there, there's so many things going on here. And obviously the, the book doesn't come out until tomorrow. But we, there's been a, quite a bit of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching already about the fact that, yeah, so Atticus is not depicted as this incredible dispenser of justice, uh, that he's, he's narrow-minded, he's a little bit bigoted, he's, you know, well, but he's the first draft of Atticus. This is the first draft of Atticus. She she made other choices when she was when it was suggested to her by the editor that she write a different novel. Sure, and I think we share the belief that uh, we need to remind people that Atticus is not a real person. So, is the question that's kind of swirling around is is this the same character or are these two versions? Is one of these like fan fiction of the other? Um, but I was also reading today about. Um, her father, Harper Lee's father, and his own views on race. And apparently he was a segregationist and had more in common with the Atticus in Ghost Set of Watchmen. So one of the speculative questions that we have no right to ask, but I will, is did that aspect of his character get pulled back because her father was still alive at the time? I want to mention we're live here in the afternoon. If you've uh, pre-ordered the book or you've just now you're wishing you hadn't pre-ordered the book or <laughs> something like that, give us a call, 860-275-7266, or if you never intended to read this book ever anyway, 860-275-7266. You may tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Our tweet master, Greg Hill, is back in the house. He may, in fact, tweet back at you. Well, you know, you went back to the – you said this thing about how Atticus is not a real person. 
which I agree with you about. <laughs> but um, he's as close to a real person as a fictional character can be. People name their children after him. You know, he's he's and he's in our heads in all kinds of different ways. He's in our heads as Gregory Peck in the movie. He's in our heads uh, as what he is in the book. This is a character who I mean, we really sort of are in Pirandello country here, right? This is a character who really exists in a way that's almost a little bit independent of authorial intent. People have taken yes. this character and run with him. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, you know, one of my reactions is I'm sort of amused by the whole thing because I feel like this is what we deserve. You know, like we we basically demanded to read this early draft and then we get a character that we don't like. And, you know, I think a lot of people will join me in pointing out that Atticus was never perfect. And there have been many, many um, reactions to to, To Kill a Mockingbird that have pointed out his really paternalistic views on race, and he was really never perfect all along. So it's us as readers and as a culture who have made him an exemplary figure, and now that's gone. Now that's taken away. I, um, I'll name drop here and say that I, um, I had to do an event with Gregory Peck years ago at the Bushnell uh, where I brought him out on stage, and I, I said that he had really influenced American life and American mores. I said, personally, I can't shoot a rabid dog without putting my glasses. You know, like, <laughs> like that. Um, but, but he's sort of that iconic. But, yeah, I feel as though we've parked a lot of ideas in him that, that are sort of there and sort of not there. And I wrote a blog post earlier today saying, in a way, he really is the, the embodiment of America. He he has a consciousness of justice that's strong enough so that when he sees a miscarriage of justice, he can't let it stand and he'll risk his own safety for it. He'll do almost anything to save Tom Robinson from what he regards as an unfair set of charges and also to preserve his right to the kind of trial that he should have. So in this in almost hopeless quest to, to preserve justice, he'll do this. But the criticism of him is he doesn't have – it's kind of the ta Coates criticism mm-hmm. in a way. He doesn't really have – a critique of the overall system. Mm-hmm. It's just the case that's right in front of him, right? Yeah, exactly. And he'll say he'll do almost anything. That's right. He'll do almost anything. He's still polite to his very racist neighbors. Um, and he doesn't go all the way. He's not an activist. Um, so one thing I'm really interested in with this new book, which I have not read, but I read the first chapter, mm-hmm. as I assume you have, um, is what Scout's role is going to be. Is Scout going to be our new Atticus? Are we, is Scout the, is this the white liberal that we're going to get for our current time of this 25-year-old girl who has strong views of race? And it, will the will the original novel now be reversed? Will she be teaching her father empathy and progressive ideals? Let's uh, grab a call here from Beth in West Hartford. Hi, Beth. You're on the air. Our number, by the way, 860-275-7266. We're on the air with Julia Pistel. Hi, Beth. What's Hi. up? Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just uh, I haven't heard you guys make a comment about this other than the fact that uh, the, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but that the guest on speculates that there's some suspicion about it. Well, my speculation is is that uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was written as a se- the second the second book. It was the first book published, however, and I don't think it's accidental that 50 years later that Harper Lee presumably didn't want to have the second book published because it's an entirely different new Atticus, new persona. And the fact, I, I don't know, it's suspicious, it's to me beyond suspicion that, that uh, I, I see it as two separate books. She grew up, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, and changed Atticus. So how it is that 
you'd relate the two books, she wrote this second book first. So I'm just wondering what you think about that, if I made any sense at all. Well, you made sense, although yeah. I, I don't think it's a matter of her growing up, because this all happened kind of in this, in one span. In other words, she submitted Ghost Set a Watchman to, an, to a publisher. The publisher said, no, I think you need to tell the story a different way. And she went back and wrote that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she had – I was reading a really interesting piece in the New York Times, if I may say something positive about them after the last segment, <laughs> um, about her editor, uh, who is a great editor named Tay Hayhoff, and what – the recommendations she made on the book. Now, I think that, you know, it's worth going combing through all the articles about whether or not Harper Lee, you know, really consented to having this work published after all of her protectors have died, including her editors and her sister. Um, But we'll never know. We'll never know if if she really consented. But one thing that I think is really worth noting, and this is going to come out over and over again, is at least based on this first chapter, you know, the book's just not as good, mm-hmm. period. The writing is is messier. It hasn't been edited at all um, by the publisher's own admission, just like copy editing. So this is – it's not even a finished work. So there's a lot of comparisons to be made, not just with Atticus. So it's, it's really hard to do a, a direct one-to-one. It's not like she rewrote it only changing Atticus's perspective. The um – I think we have this incredible, insatiable appetite for more of the things that we like. Oh, God, I know. I hate it. <laughs> you know, it's, and so, and then it's, it's like what you said. We get what we deserve in a certain way because, I mean, it's like, you know, after everybody read everything that Tolkien had written, I think his son Christopher tried to finish the Silmarillion or something. Uh, you know, yeah. you just know, don't even go, don't do it. Don't just you know, stay with what you've got. You know what you've got. You love it. You care about it. Read it again if you haven't read it in 10 years. But instead, it's like, no, no, we really want to see this. Yeah, I know. I, I really, it's sad. And what, however, what I think is really interesting about this case is Harper Lee is in no condition to kind of respond and explain herself and engage in a public discourse. I mean, she's just in the opposite situation of Tana Hesse Coates, who's engaging with the public all the time, doing tons of speakings. You know, we're going to have to do the same work of figuring out what she intended that we do with To Kill a Mockingbird. Absolutely. By the way, uh, Teresa Kramer uh, uh, tweets to us the whole thing. Um, well, she won't read this book uh, until she can buy a used copy because she thinks that Lee never wanted us to read this book. And and, and there is a sense that this is about money at some level, that, that, that somebody feels like they can get some money out of this. Oh, yeah. yeah. But would we be this upset if Harper Lee had been dead for five years? I don't know. It just feels sort of weird to be reading it while she's still kind of in the room. There's something about her. She's vulnerable somehow. Yeah. Um, in a way that a living person can be. Here's a call from Steve in Springfield. Hi, Steve. Hey, how are you? All Good. right. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble asking this question, but so I graduated from high school and college, and I never read it. <laughs> which, which one should, so which one should I read first now? First of all, you have to go stand in a diorama, you know, as the person who hasn't read To Kill a Mockingbird. But, um, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that we don't know because nobody – I mean, Tucker just got his ebook delivered seconds ago. He's going to get it before uh, – his his ebook has arrived of Ghost at a Watchman. So he's going to get it before the stores open tomorrow when you and I go there dressed as Boo Radley. <laughs> um I mean, it's hard to give anybody advice about this, but I mean, it seems to me, you know, you'd probably be fine if you just, this is going to turn out to be like how you used to beg your parents to let you stay up late and watch The Tonight Show or something, and then they finally did, and it wasn't, you know. I still think it would, it's important to read To Kill a Mockingbird first for two reasons. Um, One is that assuming the second book is not as well written, um, you know, you want to read the better 
book first, the more engaging book first. But also, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is the story of a little girl realizing, you know, that racism pervades her community and learning how to empathize. I mean, it's not just about Atticus and the trial. It's also about Boo Radley and these other all these other folks, to put it in Atticus terms, that she's learning to empathize with, which is the same. I mean, that's a universal American story. That's Huck Finn. That's so many other books. Um, Whereas Go Set a Watchman is a much more political uh, kind of work. So I think just for sheer engagement, I would still read To Kill a Mockingbird first. It's, I mean, it's amazing what a Rosetta Stone this book is. And I think, it, you know, you mentioned Huck Finn. It kind of belongs, maybe there's sort of a troika of Huck Finn uh, and To Kill a Mockingbird and, and maybe Catcher in the Rye, although people seem to be having more problems with that <laughs> book now than they used to. Uh, but just, you know, the articulation of the viewpoint of a young American at some particular moment. And I, I'm right, I just by chance am reading The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich, which won the National Book Award a few years ago. And it is, it's just, it could not have been written without To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sure Louise Erdrich would tell you that, you know, too, that, that something about the voice of this book and the perspective of this book and what was done by the editor who said, go write this book from the point of view of children is is just, it, it is crucial in a way that you almost can't even quantify. Yeah, and I haven't read The Roundhouse, but in the case of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you know, it's also really important to say this is the viewpoints of young white children mm-hmm. learning about race and their community and how to empathize and recognizing their own privilege, to put it in the modern parlance. Uh, <laughs> and that's really important. And so uh, it's important to note that. And that's why Go Set a Watchman might not actually be that different because it's not like it's taking one of the characters from the black community and changing it. It's just taking the same story and shoving it forward a couple decades. Yeah. The Roundhouse is it's To Kill a Mockingbird from the point of view of 12-year-old Native American boys. Oh, cool. It's, it, it's, it really actually is. I'm halfway through it. And it's just an amazing book. Um, I should say by point of correction that Tucker, is, um, his physical book has actually arrived at his house, mm-hmm. which we're going to say is an old Saybrook so people don't come and steal it from where his house actually Tucker is. Tucker would never live in old Saybrook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true, actually. Um, but yeah, I just very quickly, we're almost out of time. But it seems to me there there's two things that this book does that, that uh, To Kill a Mockingbird did, which is one of them is just its voice. It gets a voice mm-hmm. just in the same way that Huck did, just in the same way that, that Holden Caulfield is a voice. And then, of course, it does, as you say, has this story to tell about race uh, the way Huck did, too. And and But those are two, kind of two different things. And if 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 in that first chapter you already hear that flatness, that mm-hmm. the voice is gone. To me, it's like, why, it, why spend an afternoon reading? We don't know what the what the story is yet. We don't know. If it's not a coming-of-age story of a young girl, what is it? Is it, a, is it a story where a girl gets really depressed about the state of her own family? I mean, maybe. It could be. All right. Julia Pastel, who is the host of Literary Disco, add it to your podcast list if you haven't already. We have to thank everybody, especially Lydia Brown, who I did not succeed in making cry. Lydia! I don't really have anything to yell at you about. You did a great job. I said so far to go. If this-